Well, I was in Mrs. Soderbergh's third grade class, sitting in the front row, and she said, take out your science books, and uh, you know, we had the desks where you lift the lid up, and you reach in, and you take out your book, and of course, in third grade, there's like lots of pictures, and she said, today we're going to learn about how the solar system formed. Turn to page such and such. So we opened the book, and there it was. It wasn't this exact picture, but it was a picture of the sun spinning with spiral arms. And what we discovered was that the sun would throw off gas and debris, and at some point uh, throughout the rings planets started to form, and they stayed in orbit around the sun, and that's how the earth formed and all the other planets formed. And I still remember looking at that picture, and I thought, so that's how God did it. He put a big old ball of gas up there that spun around and spun off the planets, and and, uh, here we are today. Now, It wasn't until many years later that I gave Genesis chapter 1 an honest reading, and I noticed what I would say are some irreconcilable differences between Genesis chapter 1 and the science book. Follow this. The science book is saying from a purely natural perspective, this is the way it had to happen. First was the sun... And, of course, immediately, if you have a sun, you're going to have light being thrown off from the sun. Then, millions, if not billions of years later, as it's spinning, the earth forms. And then after millions of years, animals crawl out of the swamp. And then after millions of years more, man evolves from the animals, right? So from a purely natural perspective, this is the only way it could work. Sun first, then light, then the earth, then animals, then man. Genesis chapter 1 says that's wrong. First, in the beginning, God creates the heavens, space, and the earth, but it's in the dark, and it's a formless blob. First is the earth, and on day one, God says, let there be light, and there is light without the sun. Sun isn't created until day four. And then, day six, both animals and man are created. Not animals, millions of years, then uh, man. So, is it sun, light, earth, animals, man? Or earth, light, sun, animals, and man? Now, um, how many times have you heard Christians say, well, the Bible's not trying to be scientific? 
Well, that's true. I'm, I'm fine with saying that the Bible's not trying to be scientific. But there's a difference between that and saying that there was light before the sun. I mean, I don't care if you're trying to be scientific or not. The author of this chapter is either purposely trying to communicate nonsense or he's saying that what happened in creation was not a natural process, but it was a supernatural event. Either he's crazy or he's saying that what's going on here is not a natural process. And you don't need to be a scientist to figure that out. The primitive reader would have read this and said, there was light before the sun? And there was earth before the planets and the stars and the sun? Wow, this isn't how I would have thought it worked. But I guess God did it in a supernatural way, not a natural way. So let's not even try to reconcile the biblical supernatural account of creation with some non-miraculous natural account of creation. See, I'm not even trying to reconcile the miracle with naturalism. Because I don't think the author was even trying to do that. Whether he's trying to be scientific or not, I think he's saying this was a supernatural event. The science textbook and the Bible are built on two different foundations, two different presuppositions. The science textbook presupposes naturalism, that that things are just a natural process, and, big word, uniformitarianism, that things have just kind of gone along the way they are now forever, for 15, 16 billion years. The Bible presupposes not naturalism, but supernaturalism, that there is a God who miraculously created and it presupposes non-uniformitarianism, supercalifragilisticexpialidocious, right? Non-uniformitarianism. In other words, uh, he didn't need a long process. He intervened supernaturally, and things have not always been the way they are. In fact, Peter, the Apostle Peter, says this, Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires, they will say, where is the promise of his coming? So uh, you know you're in the end times when uh, a lot of people are going, oh, pff, you, got, you Christians have been talking about Jesus returning forever. Where's his, where's his second coming? And then they say this, forever since the fathers fell asleep, All things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. That's uniformitarianism. Hey, things have just been going along the way they've always gone. This talk of Jesus returning suddenly and and cosmically. There are no cosmic interruptions. It's uniformitarianism. 
Um, uniformitarianism, which is the, the, what evolution is, is, is built on, was prophesied here by Peter. But then here's his rebuttal. For they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. Peter's rebuttal is this. The creation of the world and the flood were not natural processes following uniformitarianism. They were supernatural events, miraculous events, not natural processes. Now, I know, even for Christians, this is kind of hard, uh, hard to believe because just the assumption is today that we've been here 16 billion years, the, the solar system or the, uh, the universe has been here 16 billion years and 4.5 a billion years ago, the earth formed, and just through a slow process of evolution, here we are today. Okay? The, the concept that God could do something as grand as create the universe in a short amount of time is hard to believe. Now, let me ask you this. When Jesus returns and he redoes the universe... Will that take 16 billion years or will that be instantaneous? Peter goes on, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Jesus is going to return, torch the universe, it will dissolve, and he will bring in a new heaven and a new earth. Will that be a 16 billion year process, or do you think he can do that instantaneously? And everybody would say, well, of course he's going to do that instantaneously. If he, could, if he can do it in the future, could he not have done it in the past? Or does it only work for the future? Once you see that creation is a supernatural miracle and not the result of pure naturalism, then you should have absolutely no problem with anything Genesis chapter 1 has to say. Having light before the sun, having the earth before the sun, or even God doing it in six days. What's the problem? If you believe in a future redoing of the universe instantaneously, why is it so hard to take Genesis 1 at face value? So here we go. Let's look at the days of creation. I'm going I'm to read them day by day and make some observations as we go. Day 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So, God creates the earth. It's totally dark, and it's totally covered with water, and the Holy Spirit of God is hovering around the face of the earth. There's no light yet. 
And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness and called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. Now, some of you are thinking, how could there be light without the sun? Well, don't think that we're so smart that we're the first generation who's ever asked that question. Wouldn't the first primitive readers have asked the same question? So when we, who are so smart with our scientific theories, say, well, that's not possible because we know better, why is it not possible? Well, you need the sun to have light. You won't have the sun in the new heaven and the new earth. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun. No sun. For the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. Once again, if he can have light in the new heaven and the new earth without the sun, why couldn't he have done that to begin with? Or don't you believe in God, the miraculous God of the Bible? You go, why would God do it that way? Why would he have light on day one and not put the sun in the sky until day four? I think for one reason. To make the point that from day one, creation was a supernatural event, not a natural event. And he says, I'm going to throw them off. I'm going to create light without the sun. Yes. Day one. Day two. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. You go, what's that all about? Well, the expanse is the sky. He's creating the sky. He's going to do that by separating water. Well, what water is he separating? And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so, and God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. What's going on here? Well, um, picture the earth covered, the entire surface of the earth covered with water and probably vapor and clouds on top of the water. And God says, I've got to create an atmosphere. And he creates the sky. And there's water up in the sky and water down on the earth. Okay? Now, different people have different views of, of what this water up in the sky is. Now, there's, a, there's an older theory um, where a lot of creation scientists believe that the water up in the sky is referring to what they call uh, a water canopy. What do you mean? Big bubble of water around 
the earth in the upper atmosphere that shielded the earth from ultraviolet rays. And then people, people could live to like 900 back then. And then when the flood happened, not only did water come up from the, from the, the depths of the earth, but that water canopy burst and floods the earth. You go, wow. Anybody still hold that? Yeah, a guy named MacArthur in his study notes says this. This world, pre, pre-flood world, included the physical arrangement with the canopy above the waters in the underground, reservoirs, rivers, lakes, and seas below, and the heavens in the middle. The pre-flood world sheltered from the sun's destructive ultraviolet rays and with a gentle climate without rain, storms, and wind was characterized by long life of humans and the ability of the earth like a greenhouse to produce extensively. So uh, bubble of uh, creating a greenhouse effect, perfect climate all the time, you could live to be 900. Okay, Now, um, virtually nobody holds to this view anymore, not even Ken Ham. You know when Ken Ham's a liberal. <laughs> this is a pretty, pretty conservative view here. Because um, here's the problem. Some people think it was a shell of water. Others think it was a shell of clouds, dense clouds like on Venus. Okay? The problem is God put the stars in the sky to be signs for seasons and so forth. Um, you wouldn't be able to see the stars, especially if it was clouds, you wouldn't be able to see the stars. Um, but even if it was a, a water canopy, it would distort the stars. Um, some would say, well, it was a vapor canopy, so you could see through it. I think it's just simply talking about clouds. And the clouds used to be heavy and dense on the face of the water, and then, boom, they're expanded, and it's clouds. Maybe there were more back then than there are now, but that Uh, allows us to see that there's water up there and we can see the stars too, right? Now, ultimately, we don't know. When we get to heaven, we'll be in a big lecture hall and we can ask questions and say, what was that all about? Oh, by the way, some people think that if there was a lot more water in the atmosphere, it would have formed rings, around the earth. Just like Saturn has rings, maybe the water formed vapor rings and gas rings around the earth, and then when the flood came, it all came crashing down. Ultimately, we don't know. But in the progress here, day one, God creates the heaven and the earth and light. Day two, he he, uh, creates a sky, basically. Day three, and God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. So now, for the first time, land appears. The continents rise out of the oceans. And God called 
the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together he called seas and God saw that it was good now not only in one day do you have all the the continents rising or maybe it was Pangaea one big continent who knows because this is pre-flood but now he actually covers the land with plants and God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning the third day. Now, somebody says, so you're telling us that in one day there was no land visible on the planet. It was water world. Right? And then in one day, boom, the land was here. And on that same day, fruit trees bearing fruit appeared. That's not scientifically possible. You're right. It's not scientifically possible. And yes, that's what happened. Okay? Here's an interesting uh, scripture that applies to this. Job 38. God says to Job, Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. And I think the most important word to help us out in relation to, to this question of could God really have done that is, is not where... But when? Where were you when I did this? Oh, you weren't there. Okay? So ask, ask a, a naturalistic scientist, can I ask you a question? Were you there when this happened? Oh, no. Well, how do you know how it happened? Well, the only way it could have happened, given naturalism, that all there is is the natural world, is this we reason back, according to uniformitarianism, how uh, things are going today. And the only way it could have happened is this slow process. But you weren't there, were you? No, you, no, I wasn't there. So let me ask you this. Is the question of the origin of the earth a scientific question or a historical question? Is it primarily a scientific question? Or is it primarily a historical question? I say it was a historical question. You can use science to reason back, but at some point you go, we weren't there. And God tells us in his word how he did it. Now, we learned something else from Job. Uh, who determined its measurement? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? In other words, he's questioning Job, the know-it-all. Oh, you, you, you. God is saying, so you're questioning my justice and, and how I run the universe? Let me ask you, where, where were you when I did this and I laid the foundations of the earth? And, da, 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 da. and then the last verse says this. When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. What's that referring to? The morning stars are angels and the sons of God are angels. So we learn 
that by this time, it doesn't say this in Genesis 1, but from Job we learn that God by this time has created the angels. And they're singing and rejoicing as they witness the land rise out of the sea and the vegetation cover the earth and the fruit trees spring up with fruit and they're praising God and singing. They're probably clapping too on 1 and 3, right? Not 2 and 4 because angels don't let their angel friends clap on 2 and 4, right? How do you... You do clap... No, you don't clap on 1 and 3. Well, whatever. <laughs> the angels were clapping on the right beat. They were singing. They were praising God. The earth is being created. This is awesome, all right? Day four. That was my point for day three. Okay. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons, and for days and years, and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day, and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on earth, and to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good and there was evening and there was morning on the fourth day. Day four, God now replaces his supernatural lighting with the sun and the moon. He puts the stars in the universe and now the earth is on its orbit around the sun. Now, Day four is the biggest problem for most, most people. They say, how do you explain the ability for us today to see starlight of stars that are millions of light years away if we've only been here for several thousand years? Starlight. You ready for the answer? Just as God made Adam fully mature, he looked like he was, say, 30, but he was really only one day old. And he was able to make fruit trees with fruit that looked 50 years old, but they were only one day old. Our God is able to, to make a fully mature universe with light photons already reaching Earth. He can create a mature universe just like he can create a mature tree, just like he can create a mature man. That's the answer. But according to naturalism and the, the, the calculations of the, 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 the... If you were to take a scientist and have him analyze Adam, you would have to conclude that God did not create Adam that day. But remember, this isn't a scientific lecture. It's a supernatural occurrence. Okay? 
day five. So now he's going he's gonna to populate the seas and the sky with fish and birds. And God said, let the water swarm with swarms of living creatures. And let birds fly above the earth, across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures. And every living creature that moves, with which the waters swarm according to their kinds. And every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, be fruitful and multiply. And fill the waters and the seas. And let the birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. Now, um, to those who find a young earth and a young universe scientifically impossible, let me ask you a question. When you, okay, let's get out of Genesis and let's go to the Gospels. We read in all four Gospels that Jesus is teaching, and there's uh, 5,000 men, not to mention the wives and children, listening to him teach. And there's only two fish and five loaves. They didn't have the Panera deal, right? (laughs) Or the donut deal, right? (laughs) And Jesus fed the 5,000. Now, let me ask you this. Do you believe that the fish were fully mature fish? Yeah. Yeah. So, in principle, if he could create fully mature fish on a small scale, could he have done the same on a worldwide scale with all the oceans? And if he could do that, could he have created the entire universe with maturity? So a lot of people go, 5,000, feeding the 5,000. Yeah, he could have created mature fish. That's no problem. And maybe even creating 5 billion fish or however many billion fish there are. I'll give him that. Trillions of stars? No, he can't do that. So maybe the question is, how big is your God? Or how small is your God? Right? Why is it okay for him to, to do a miracle feeding people fish instantaneously, but he can't do it on a worldwide scale in the ocean or on a universal scale with the stars? Is there a problem here? Okay. Day six. Now we're at the pinnacle of creation. Now we get animals and man. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kind and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good and God said, let us, we'll come back to that, Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. 
Male and female, he created them, and God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Man is the only creature where God makes this creature in his own image. The animals are not made in God's image. When you erase that and you go, well, God didn't create man specially in his image. Man evolved from the animals. Then it makes sense why we're at a crazy place in the world where the PETA people would say meat is murder. Because you just evolved from that chicken. You see, even, at least I should say some, vegetarianism flows from a rejection of creation. That God created man different than the animals. Now, I'm not for cruelty to animals. I love, I love animals. With a little barbecue sauce, they're great. Okay. <laughs> now, um, some people say, well, um, it's just wrong to eat meat. So let me ask you a question. Did Jesus ever sin? No. Was he an observant Jew? Yes. Did he perfectly keep the law? Yes. Was the law that you had to eat a lamb on Passover? Yes. Did Jesus eat a lamb? Yes. Jesus ate meat. Oh, let's 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 not leave that up there. Let's go back here. Okay, what does it mean that man was created in the image of God? Well, that must mean that man has some things in common with God that are different than the animals. So theologians debate over this. What exactly is being created in the image of God? Well, um, it's those things that we have in common, those attributes we have in common with God, not to the same degree, but are different than the animals. Let me mention just quickly six things. One uh, would be intellect. Okay. Now, animals, they can think. Like I watch the squirrels outside of my, uh, my house, and they try to climb up this pole to get to the bird feeder, and then they slide down. And they try it again, and they slide down. So then they go over onto the porch, and they take a, a flying run. And <laughs> sometimes they get the bird feeder, sometimes they miss. Boom, that's funny. Um, this is pick on animals day, isn't it? But, you know, he's thinking, he's thinking, how do I get that bird seed, right? But that's just a real base-level thinking. We can do algebra, some of us, right? 
<laughs> and, and we can think abstractly and use the law of non-contradiction and do syllogisms and we can read and think and do complex things. Now, we're a million miles away from God, but we're a million miles ahead of the dog. Right? So there's intellect. Um, there's dominion here in this passage. Go rule the world. Tap its resources. Right? Don't destroy the world. But I've given you the world to use. Right? So as God is in dominion over the universe, he has given man dominion over the earth. There's creativity. As God is a creator, I, I, you know, today we sang a song that Adam created. Right? I, I think that is a picture of the image of God in man. Don't get a big head at him, right? Morality. We know right from wrong because God has created us in his image and put his law on our hearts. Okay? Communication. We have a capacity to learn language and, re- and read and communicate, and God has chosen that ability uh, for us to understand language to communicate to us, right? And then, love. He has created us with the attribute and the ability to love one another and him. Now, um, since love is the essence of being created in God's image... Doesn't it make sense that God has always loved? But you go, nobody existed before he created man, so there was no one for him to love. How could he love without there being other people? There have always been other people. You go, oh, Pastor Brian just lost it. He went off the the, the tracks there. No, there's always been other people. One God... Three people, three persons. The members of the Trinity have always loved one another. And you go, oh, that Trinity thing, it's debatable. It's only in the New Testament. Really? Genesis chapter 1. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Who's the us and the our? Our that God is talking about. Um, sometimes in your footnotes, you'll, in, the, in the Bible, you'll read, oh, well, and this comes more from the liberal scholars who don't, who don't want to acknowledge that God could have, been, have revealed the, the, the triune nature that he has always existed as a plurality. Uh, so they'll say, oh, well, this isn't God uh, revealing that he is three people. Um, this is God using the plural of majesty. What is that? Well, you know, like when the queen, the queen of England wants to make a decree. She will use we instead of I. Today we will decree it's National Hot Dog Day. 
in England. Get your grape upon. You know, so <laughs> she, she, instead of saying I, it's we. And God is royal, so he's just using the plural of majesty. No, he's a trinity. Okay. I also believe that when it emphasizes here that God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him, male and female, he created them. Man is male and female. Okay? And a lot of theology we could go into there, but just, I, I think he's saying, as God is a plurality, the essence of humanity is a plurality, not just man or woman, but both. Okay? So, he creates man as the pinnacle of creation, and now he's got to feed him. Meat is murder, no. Um, and God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. So at this point, they are vegetarians. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was everything, uh, and there was evening, and there was morning on the sixth day. All right? Up to this point, God has said a number of times, it is good, it is good, it is good. But once man is made in his own image, he says, it is very good. Because now, the first, uh, the first five days have been him getting the planet ready for man. And now, man has been created. The, and this, is, this will drive naturalists crazy who, uh, who, who think that... You know, there are actually some, some people who say it would be better if man wasn't here and it was just a natural jungle out there full of animals. Man is, uh, is, is a problem on the planet. Okay? I'm going to say the universe was made for man. And it wasn't declared very good until God created man in his image. And now we are here. Because he created the world, yes, ultimately for his glory but for us to live in. Perfectly designed universe for man. All right? Now, we're going to actually go into chapter 2 because there's one more day left, day 7. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Now, why did he rest? Was he tired? No, God, you know, as we read in Isaiah, he does not get tired. He didn't rest because he was tired. He was now enjoying his creation. All right? Why, though, did God do it this way? Creates 
in six distinct days and rests on the seventh day. It points to Christ. You go, what? Yes. You know what we learned in this children's conference yesterday? That every passage can take you to Christ. And here, this passage can take you to Christ. How? God built the universe in six days, and he rested on the seventh day to set a pattern for the Jews to keep the Sabbath. The fourth commandment says this, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But, on the, seventh, uh, but the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall, do, uh, you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. Now it would be interesting if it just stopped there and God said, uh, you work six days, you rest on the seventh day. But he gives a reason of why we're to do this. Four, because in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Now, one of the strongest arguments for literal six-day creationism is the fourth commandment. Those who don't believe in a young earth and a young creation, interesting question, do you really believe that the days in verse 9 are different than the days in verse 11? Six days you shall labor and do all your work. Why? For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth. Really, you need to cross that out. In six days you're to work and rest on the seventh, just as God in six billion years. Really, the word day, even in the same context, means 24-hour day in verse 9, but in 11 it means billions of years. Just the parallelism. Now, they, those who all do an old earth would say that, yeah. Just as man in six, man is to, to rest, uh, to work and then rest in six literal days, just as God in six epochs of time. That, that's how, how they would, would do it. But here's how it gets to Christ. You go, wow. God purposely created the universe in six days and rested on the seventh to illustrate the Sabbath? We better take the Sabbath seriously, right? We better, uh, you know, this is, <laughs> this is serious enough that if he created the world this way, it's got to be wrong to not follow the Sabbath. But you know what? And I want to obey God. I don't want to mislead anybody, but here's my view on the Sabbath. When you get to the New Testament, the Sabbath, Sabbath keeping, becomes one of those disputable matters that we read about. Where some people have a conviction to keep the Sabbath and others don't. And Paul would say, be convinced in your own mind, 
but don't lay your burden on other people. Where is that? Colossians 2, Therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. Don't you judge me if I don't keep the Sabbath, and I won't judge you. And if you do keep the Sabbath, that's fine. But it's a disputable matter. You go, God built the whole universe on the Sabbath principle. Of course you should keep it. No, Paul says it's a disputable matter. Why? Because these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Christ is our Sabbath. Christ died on the cross. He did the work. So now when we trust in him, we are saved by faith, by rest, not by works. God built the universe in six days and rested to point not to the Sabbath, but first to the Sabbath, but ultimately to Christ. Genesis chapter 1 points to Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, you are awesome. Not only in your creation power, but in how you planned it out all along. That you created the universe pointing to Jesus who is our rest. So Lord, as we look at Genesis chapter 1, we can get so caught up in the details that we miss the big picture, the cross. You did your work on the cross and we enter into rest because of the cross. So Lord, as we Leave this morning. I pray you would refresh us as we rest in the cross. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.